once the object of their hate goes away, what then? So we've just watched the 2020 Anna Taylor-Joy version of Emma that came out last year, um, and it's only the second Jane Austen film that I've ever seen, the first being, I don't know what year it was, it looked like it was made in the 90s or early yeah. 2000s, of Persuasion. Yeah, it was Karen Hines. Yeah, and that was, let's say I wasn't exactly riveted by it. Yeah. This version of Emma, I enjoyed quite a bit. I haven't seen any other versions of Emma, I haven't read the book. But I found it enjoyable f for the sake of what I would attribute to a much more modern screenplay and direction. Yeah. I would assume the other versions of Emma, I don't know whether you've ever seen any other versions. Yeah, I've seen the Gwyneth Paltrow version and then the BBC three-part miniseries I see. Um, that was made even more recently. I forget what year it was, but it was in the last several years. And that's my favorite rendition of... The BBC Adam. one. Yeah, the three-part miniseries. Um, which is funny because with regards to Pride and Prejudice, the um, BBC series that everyone talks about as like... You know, when you start talking to a real Jane Austen nerd, they're like, oh, the BBC version with, what is it, Colin Firth, I, I think. I think I have seen clips of that. Yeah. And I I tried watching a little bit of it just to be like, what's the deal? And I despised it. Like, I, I, I imagine the reaction that you had to Persuasion uh, was yes. the reaction that I had to that series. I was just like... This is utterly dull. I'm not feeling an attachment to any of these characters. Mr. Darcy, like, if I was a woman, would not be attracted to this guy mm -hmm. at all. Like, whoever plays Darcy in the more recent Bride and Prejudice adaption with Keira Knightley, that guy, significantly more attractive. Just from yeah. my perspective. And I was like, okay, I can get coming down with the... He just felt more like dark, brooding, kind of like a... He could be Bruce Wayne, you know. It it, it was much more... Um, there was stuff for me to get on to. Um, that was Matthew McFadden? McFadden? McFadden, maybe. Yeah. It's uh, kind of an odd name. I assume he's Scottish. Yeah, yeah. Um, in any case, I must confess that I have actually seen some, at least, parts of a handful of episodes of the BBC series. That's the one that's got that, this is Pride and Prejudice, the Keira Knightley one I have up here, but it's got that rather plain-looking woman yeah. as the main actress. I don't know yeah. what the character's name is. Elizabeth Bennet. Oh, yeah, Miss Bennet. Yeah. So, like... So you're I'm, the resident expert here. <laughs> well, and just movies. Like I was saying, I've only ever read Pride and Prejudice. And I found it that... It was funny, we had to read it that and 1984 over the summer for school. Two very different books. Yes. 
I despised Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. 1984, I ate up, like, in a matter of days. This would be the second reference to 1984 that you've made in yeah. as many episodes. Yeah. I very much appreciate Orwell's writing, um, what I've read of it, and I don't... <laughs> I think 84 is the only thing I've read of him. Mm-hmm. I just know some of his, like, quotes that float around the internet, and then having read 84... Um, I have or... a copy of Animal Farm, if you'd like to okay. borrow it. Yeah. I think I would like to read that and it's not particularly long no it's kind of a novella gotcha. it's, it's actually in a volume that i have that has both of them in it okay 1984 in animal form gotcha but yeah so as far as the movies go i know that we've had the discussion like you totally could not get into persuasion mm. um because it felt very stiff there was like a general lack of feeling kind of this emotionlessness it, sorry, I don't no, want to go cut, cut you off, but I feel like I need to qualify that. <laughs> because I have watched films that were somewhat emotionless or that didn't hit me very well. Say, for instance, the first thing that comes to mind is um, Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises. Which isn't an emotionless film. It does have emotion in it. It's just most of the time that emotion is sadness. I don't know whether you've ever seen it. No, I've not. It's one of the most recent Ghibli films, I think. Made after all the, like, big famous ones, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's about this aeronautics engineer in pre-World War II Japan. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's pre-World War II. And he's he's making planes and he's designing them. His wife gets sick or something, and she it's probably polio or something like that. And and I mean I don't know for certain. It's been a while since I've seen it. But most of the movie is just him designing these planes and having various experiences in the field of work and personal life. It's kind of it's more slice of life sure. than most Ghibli stuff tends to be. And when it is emotional, it's usually sad. Because either the wife's sick, or she dies, or something like that, you know. Yeah. But I compare it to Persuasion because it didn't give me anything. Sure. There was nothing that I got out of the experience to play with in my head later. Mm -hmm. Or to to think about, you know, what are the implications of this or that? You know, what, what kind of societal or theoretical or something else kind of things could I take from this? Sure. You know. And so the same is true with Persuasion. I feel like it's very much just, here's some courting from the Edwardian period in Britain, and that's it. Yeah. Like, it, there was nothing that I could gain from it. And even the stuff that has been purported to be um, kind of the heart of Jane Austen's whole project is that she's kind of making fun of her society sure for me personally that's inaccessible Mm -hmm. because i one have no interest in that society and two have no connection to it in any way and so whatever implicit critiques she's making of that society fall completely on deaf ears for me so that i have nothing that i can gain from it sure and i for me there is, um, and I think this is 
whenever you're approaching art, this is where the various personalities and backgrounds of the individuals coming to the piece of art is massively significant. Um, so for me, when I look at persuasion, I can very much get into that story because the stiffness, the kind of rigidity of my, you know, uh, middle school, high school years, you know, when you start saying, hey, I'm romantically interested in people. Um, you know, I grew up in a pretty conservative environment with you know, there was the I kiss dating goodbye stuff where you didn't even call it dating. You did call it courting. Holding hands was, depending on who you talk to, even, like, forbidden. People would make jokes like, you're making eye babies with someone. There's this, there's this meme that's like, you held her hand without a glove on? Yeah. What, did you eat her out? Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And so, like, I was mentioning during or after we finished watching Emma, um, you know, touching someone's hand, like, emotionally was, like, almost on a level of making love because there was no... There was no other way to express it. Like, mm -hmm. you were basically locked in this cage emotionally. You're in an emotional straitjacket yeah, kind of thing. you couldn't do anything. Yeah. And I remember the first time I put, you know my arm around, you know, the woman who would become my wife after we had had a very awkward conversation about, like, the way we felt about each other and our importance to each other. I was like, oh, my God, am I going to hell? Like, because, like that was the environment that we were in. And I, I didn't know what was... You know, you have this very keen sense of a slippery slope, like, oh my god, right now I'm putting my arm around her next moment, you know, we're going to be having premarital sex, and then we're both excommunicated, like, fuck. So, uh, there's a lot that I can relate to in that stiffness that you see in persuasion. And also, there's this, you know, I, I know that my wife very much relates to the character, um, Anne, in persuasion of just personality wise like Anne is very much a, a peacekeeper she's a mediator she's who everyone in the family comes to to basically vent to and she is to bear all of that I don't know whether this is um, narratively true but yeah. that is the position of a first child usually yeah. I don't know whether she would is the first child and if I recall she is okay yes. because if there is anything that I identify with as a first child it is that kind of thing you gotcha. get the weight gotcha. and that's where I guess that I'm kind of an oddball mm. because I am a first child and for me the brother after me he has that personality I don't have that personality for me like we've kind of discussed before I am much more about principles and adhering to those principles. And like I've said, you know, before in conversation, I don't think on this podcast, but for me at the end of the day, virtue is more important than even family. So I'm kind of an oddball there, I guess. But yeah, my wife very much identifies with that character and just that weight. And also the character Eleanor from Sense and Sensibility, who is also the eldest 
a very similar character where they're just they're rather reserved they don't really let their feelings out to anyone they bear everyone out everyone else's burdens and people seem to be giving them very little attention mm. and that sort of personality tends to just get steamrolled and more and more burdens get piled on them and then they just break eventually mm-hmm. she can re- very much relate to that character and i can very much not as much as she can to Anne, but I can kind of identify with the character Captain Wentworth, who a very good actor, by the way. In, yes, in Persuasion. Yes, yeah, I really enjoy his stuff generally. Yeah, he recently and excuse my interruption. He yeah. recently did a show, I think it was for Stars or something called The Terror. Okay, that is him as an Ar- Edwardian. Um, ship captain trying to find nice. a passage, the Northwest Passage. Yeah. And it's very, very good. Okay. Anyway. I think I've seen trailers for that. It's good. Yeah. I would like to see that. But his character is... I, te- I do tend to like a lot of the, the, the characters in the Jane Austen stories. Again, just going off the movies. Particularly kind of the main male characters. You know, you have Wentworth, who is refused by Anne. Mm-hmm. Because Anne was being deferential to kind of her her um elder i forget that character's name but um the the female elder she had in her life kind of mentor character she was being deferential to her taking her advice performing like a a duty Mm -hmm. this mentor said you know wentworth isn't a good fit for you he doesn't have any prospects any connections he's not stable so you should basically not listen to your heart, and you should find someone who's more stable. That seems to be a general theme. Yes. Which I want to touch on that. Okay. With regards to just romance in general. You mean the stability then, thing? Yes. Then versus now. Okay. Because I do think there is something to be said for tempering romance with sense of the practical, not getting ahead of yourself, kind of containing those fires of love. Anyway, so she listens to her mentor, and Wentworth goes away to sea, does become a somewhat successful officer in the Navy, has a way more exciting life than Anne will ever have, living stuffed in this house, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, doing the standard Age of Regency female gig of Mm -hmm. just kind of being a house ornament. Which doesn't mean they didn't... It's not that they didn't have any power. Uh-huh. But it is much more behind the scenes like you hear in a lot of ancient through the Middle Ages, through kind of basically the periods that everyone associates as like the age of female oppression, right? It's not that they didn't have power. It's just it wasn't... A public power? Yes. Um, but anyway, I'm kind of getting off track here. But uh, Captain Wentworth comes back. And you can see in him, because I did this, right? Because I was interested in my wife back in high school. Aren't we all? Yeah. (laughs) She didn't want anything to do with me at that point. Don't they all? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so eventually, you know, I just kind of said, well, I guess that's not going to be a thing, and kind of went my 
my separate way. <laughs> she was never involved in the process. You can't stay terribly attached to that because you're just going to be it, dragged through the emotional mud. Yeah, there's no reciprocation, so you just call it quits and you go off in search of other fish, I guess. Um, so that's what I did. And it wasn't till later that I came back and started pursuing her again. So I, I can kind of get that. The having an interest, being rejected, and coming back to it. Um, and also, Wentworth has seen the world, he's traveled, he's experienced all different sorts of people. He has this breadth of experience that Anne doesn't. And then he's interacting with these other females who are kind of fawning over him because he does have this like adventure aura about him and he's seen things. And, you know, anyone, male or female, if they've been rejected and then all of a sudden they're desired, the natural tendency is to play that up and kind of be like, yeah, you rejected this uh -huh. and it is desired. Um, oh, how the turntables. Yeah, yeah. It's it, And it is. It's a defense mechanism. You're protecting your own sense of self-worth. Mm -hmm. Or at the very worst, your pride. Yeah, and there's some some gray between, like, those two things. Yes, there are. But anyway, there's also an element, too, that comes up in Jane Austen's work of this, like... Kind of sleazy, greasy, bad boy, also exciting kind of mysterious character in Sense and Sensibility. It's Mr. Willoughby. In Emma, Frank Churchill. I'm trying to think. guess we can just go with those two for now. But there are these characters that... And you see it all the time in society. There are these characters, and you look at these men, and you're like, why the fuck are they the ones who are gone after? Because everyone smells the shit on them, except the starry-eyed folks pursuing them. And you wonder it, how someone could be so dull to go after so nasty an individual. It's like in Emma, when Frank Churchill... And Emma were kind of sitting there in the corner, psychoanalyzing everyone in the room. And I express, like, having seen such conversations take place in real life and how infuriating it is. Because you, you, you see this spider basically, you know, wrapping up the prey in its web. And it's despicable. Well, so, I want to kind of segue into... The stability in romance and stuff like that. Gotcha. By talking about kind of everything that you've just talked about there. Okay. Um, first off, I'll kind of start in one place and work my way back. Gotcha. Um, start here and work my way back. Generally, I think there is something about the exotic and the dangerous, the uncertain, um, that is attractive to humans generally. Sure. That we tend to be especially if we have grown up in a certain environment yeah. and have, at the very least, disliked or rebelled in our hearts against that environment, to see a chink in the armor, like the bad boy or 
something else, some kind of maybe adventure or something like that, it's very attractive because it represents an escape from that straitjacket, from yeah. that emotional straitjacket. Yeah. And so, in that way at least, it is understandable, if not excusable, mm-hmm. you know. I confess there are times when I have tried to be that. Mm-hmm. I think every guy goes through, or I shouldn't say every guy, but a lot of guys go through that phase of trying to be like the scoundrel, more or less. Yes, and and I have I have played the scoundrel before. Thank God I've come around on it, but you tend to, I think, fall into that kind of thing specifically in social milieus that you've been in for a while. Yeah. Like, so for me, it happened at college. Sure. That being in college around this group of friends, around this the same group every day, pretty much, you tend to carve out your little identity mm-hmm. in that. And certainly if, if you don't tend to fit into that group perfectly, like for me, it was generally like the, the nerds group. Mm-hmm. But like, and I've said to you before, the kind of acceptable nerds, not the absolutely... Degenerate de- basement <laughs> bottom dwellers. Exactly, the people who <laughs> scream in the cafeteria and stuff like that. Yeah. Who are over here playing magic and that's all they do all day, every day. Like, not those people. But still nerds. We still sat down and played rummy every day. You yeah. know, and played many games of rummy every day. But you tend to carve out your little space in that. And for me, that carved out little space was the guy who, like the storm crow. Mm-hmm. You know, a a friend of mine from church has described her younger years going to various other churches um, with her friend as, like, sitting in the back and you cross your arms and you go, well, I don't like that and mm-hmm. I don't like this and that's not right and how dare you this and haven't you known yeah. this or something like that. You, you be the storm crow. Yeah. And so I kind of carved that kind of little niche out in this group of friends, especially... And I don't mean this as a brag. This has been basically told to me. Like, I was the more mature... Me and my brother as, as well. Like, yeah. the more mature members of this group. Yeah. And so we tended to be less accessible. Sure. Like, there was less right out on the table for you to get. Mm-hmm. And so there was this kind of element of the... Not the bad boy. It wasn't like we were smoking cigarettes and wearing leather jackets or anything like that. <laughs> Had the switchblade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, God, the 50s still haunt us, don't they? Oh, yeah, they do. But still, that was my experience. Yeah. And to work back even further, what you were talking about, I think one of the reasons that the Jane Austen adaptations and... I, like I said, I've never read any of the books myself, but I assume the books, just from what I know of the adaptations, would be emotionally inaccessible to me because my experience with romance has not been that. Yeah. My experience with romance has been a thoroughly 21st century experience of romance. Sure. So that, like, I am in no way familiar with the emotional straitjacket. More than anything, I have attempted to create an emotional straitjacket for myself. Gotcha. Because nothing in my environment has created that for me. So that 
if it weren't for some kind of higher morality or ethics or whatever you want to call it, some kind of higher concern for virtue, mm -hmm. I would be my father. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I have identified that tendency within me. Yeah. And it has, has come out at various times. For me, my background, just like you were saying, you know, the background of the person coming to the art affects their oh, view yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. For me, there is nothing relatable. There is nothing that I identify with in the courting and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's a game. Yeah. There's a game that you play, yeah. you know, whenever you're trying to court someone, whenever you're, you know, dating or trying to get ready to date or something like that you know you're you're playing emotional footsie you yeah. know yeah and sometimes you're playing real footsie you yeah. know yeah but unless you want to go to hell well exactly and then you don't fucking play foot <laughs> well, footsie. Well, so, that's, <laughs> so that's the thing i have never ever had that in the back of my mind yeah. so that even now or so that especially now in the middle of lent i look back at various times in my life where the things that I were doing, where the things, things that, that I were doing, doing boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, son. Where the things were. <laughs> God, and we're not even drinking. It's 11 in the morning. <laughs> it's early. It's early. The things that I was doing were kind of hypocritical. Yeah. That they were not, and I don't mean like 2019, I mean like 2016, yeah. you know, were not in line with what I profess to be highest and noblest. Yeah. And I look back at them now, and in light of the efforts that I'm trying to make now, and thinking like, how could I have so separated these things? How could I have been so disconnected how could i have had such a mental disconnect yeah as that and i you know i can't offer an account of that that's just the way it was but in any case it, i digress even what is good or what is virtuous what is noble about my experience in the realm of romance has not been anything similar to that like it has been a very like what do you want to call it? Like a breathless infatuation kind of thing, a kind of like absolutely burning with passion kind sure. of thing. It's it's none of this like stiff upper lip kind of, you know, I've got my nice petticoat on and, you know, would you like to dance kind of thing. Yeah. There have been moments where that has been put on and has been fun in that putting on. Yeah. But that was never the actual essence of the thing. Yeah. Well, and that's... uh for me, having grown up in that environment where there, there was a lot more control, there were very, very high standards. Doesn't mean the passion wasn't there. Like, the, the passion was off the charts. It's just there was no way to let it out for fear of doing something that would damn my soul. And, you know, disappoint everyone around me and... I was already ostracized enough, which was the thing. Like, I was already ostracized enough because I was small. I, you know, had asthma. I sucked at athletics. Like, I was a bookworm. You know, my ears stuck out. 
I was already <laughs> like uh, from uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We're a couple of mass fans. Like it, yeah. it was that sort of thing. And I was like, I can't take any more like being kicked out of the community. Like I got to do what I can do. Yeah. Um, so like the, the passion was definitely there but there were all these rules to follow and the, mm-hmm. the older i got the more i did kick against the goads mm-hmm. and say i'm i'm just not going to do this now i never went crazy like a lot mm-hmm. of people that grow up in a, a similar environment do go crazy mm-hmm. they just throw it all off throw the baby out with the bathwater, say there was nothing good about that environment and they go nuts and experience and very bad experiences doing very stupid things teaches them like where quasi healthy boundaries are. Um, if they survive that long, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And for me, I didn't throw it all off. I just kicked it back a little bit. I was seeking out that balance. Again, kind of the, the, the way I look at all of life, there's always this sense of consequence that I carry around. I'm always aware of consequence. So even like I've told you before, you know, I've been in situations where, like, if I wanted to, the opportunity was there to, like, let all of that passion out uh-huh. and, like, really have a hot and heavy, enjoyable kind of experience. But I was like, this would be massively stupid on my uh-huh. part. It would be massively stupid on my part. Like, the there's there's no way that this little brief moment of getting what I want is worth it, is worth the consequence. But it doesn't mean the passion is, isn't there. It's just restrained. <laughs> yeah, and I, I didn't mean to insinuate that the passion wasn't there. Yeah. Just that for me, in my experience, there has been much more of a free flow of passion. Yeah. You know, like I've taken this kind of poet's approach, you know, where you're yeah. just constantly overflowing with yeah. passion. Like, yeah. Oh, I wrote you this thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've... Anyway. <laughs> so, that for me, I guess, I kind of identify more with the romance of later periods. Mm-hmm. Of, like, maybe the romanticist period. You know, maybe toward the late 1800s or something like that. Yeah. I identify much more with this kind of beautiful but only constrained insofar as it is to be made beautiful expression of passion mm-hmm. of later eras yeah. not where you're so bound by traditions and bound by propriety to not do or say such and such sure. you know but that if we're going to hold hands it's going to be beautiful it's going to be somehow fueled by this passion is going to be this grand expression or whatever. Yeah. Rather than like this, my God, I've waited all my life to just put my hand on yours or something like that. You know what I mean? And I would say that I've kind of come to, I've come to a similar spot where I, I do appreciate kind of the, the sappiness of the late 1800s, you know, like the Victorian, like, sobbing man like sort of image 
That's the, the women with their heaving bosoms and like that sort of thing. Like, I'm very much down with all of that. I wonder why I, my immediate association with that is Percy Shelley. Because to be entirely honest with you, I haven't read that much Percy Shelley. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I get that. I, 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 And for me, that's just brief side note. That's one of those things, like, when it comes to art, and a lot of things actually anymore, I don't want to know too much about it. Because the more you know about something, the more it tends to kind of profane it. You, you find out the dirt. And I know enough about life's dirt to not need to know anymore. I have like a a, <laughs> a working body of dirt, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that enables me to get through life and not trust people too readily and do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. But like if it comes to something beautiful that I want to enjoy like music or film. Like I can talk about it, but I don't really want to delve into its technicalities and how it was made. I want to yeah. see the wizard doing magic and be like, that's fucking awesome, and leave it alone. You want to have the wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, kind of, to use that idea of wonder, but balancing it with practicality, what I see, what I see taking place... You know, a, a lot of the young love out there right now. Like, I am so glad that I am married and, like, expecting a kid and, like, out of that phase of, mm -hmm. like, trying to find a significant other. You're a non-combatant now. Yeah, because I would hate to be dating in this climate or seeking out a significant other in this climate. One, with all the PC stuff out there and the SJW stuff and... In a way, there's just as many rules as I had to deal with in my super conservative environment. It's just the rules are different. It's a different kind of propriety. Yeah. There's all these things like, well, don't say this, but <laughs> it's like, be perfect as society wants you to be perfect instead of be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Like, like let the girl know that you love her. And you think she's hot and she's, you know... A girl boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but don't be creepy. Don't overdo it. For the love of God, don't send her a dick pic. Yeah. Um, which that sort of thing has never... Like, I can't fathom. I can't fathom doing such a thing. You can't fathom the Snapchat and Tinder era yeah. of romance because for me my understanding and i was just talking with my wife last night about this and we've had a zillion conversations about this before but i think the healthiest place or the the, the healthiest perspective anyone can have regarding romance and a a practical relationship is one in which there is reciprocation and provision. So for me, my understanding of what it means to be a good husband, and in a little bit, a father, and currently just as a member of a community, what I do is take stock of my resources and bring them 
to each of those relationships, husband, father, community member, and I give everything that I can possibly give to that community mm-hmm. and to those the, the members of that community and assist those members of the community. So I, I hate how casual, how casually and cheaply relationships are treated now, or at least it seems that way to me. Sending each other a, a text, like my wife and I did that because we started our relationship long, or um, we started going steady the day I left for school. Mm-hmm. So like the first two years of our relationship were long distance. That's such a like classic thing. It's like getting married before you ship off to war yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we had to use, like, we would text each other, we would call each other, we, but we didn't just text each other. We didn't just rely on technology. We were using a tool and we kept it in that sphere. We also wrote each other letters. I have, we have every letter we ever wrote each other. I have every email we ever exchanged. I printed every one out and bound them in a book. Oh, we have our holy shit. We dude. have the log of our communication from ground zero. Mm. So that'll be important to your children one day. Yeah. I hope. yeah, and I look back like we've we've both looked back at some of our old communications. And we're like, what the fuck were we saying? Like, it's just terrible. You look back and you're like, oh my god, that was bad. But it that. That's humbling. Like, that keeps you from getting too big ahead. Like, yes, I've gone through growth myself, and I'm going to go through more growth. But with regards to relationships, I just see people putting in so, so little. I mean, I guess it's what they, they're doing what they can with what they have. But to me, it seems so little. Like, there's so little reciprocation. Like, if you're talking that you're about to... in embark on this journey together where kids are going to be involved, a house is going to be involved, you're going to be dealing with each other's career and stuff, like, you better start learning to put in, like, serious amounts of yourselves. Well, so, I think that's where maybe you missed the point of a lot of modern, or I I can't say modern, current, Mm -hmm. I say current. Modern's too descriptive of other things. Relationships. That my understanding and my experience of various other people and their relationships and my own throughout time is that for the most part, those long-term goals are not present. And when they become present, they are like dreams that might happen. Sure. That for a lot of young people, and of course I only speak provisionally, I am one man, the issue of relationships is largely an issue of getting a thing. Mm -hmm. And that getting the thing is usually sexual pleasure, but not always. For some people, like, say my brother, that is a kind of emotional satisfaction, where, like, you have this, this situation in which you have the IV drip of emotion, something like that, where you are not necessarily doing what you're doing in order for the creation of long-term things. Like, it's not like you're creating the long-term things because they are good in themselves. You know, you are doing it for the sake of those long-term things are merely more concrete instantiations of the IV drip. 
You see what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I truly think that my brother gets this from my mother, that there's this kind of idea of this, like, it's like an emotional addiction. Yeah. Where you are getting the drug of emotional satisfaction from this other person Mm -hmm. and the issues that both of them have had in relationships, and me as well. It has come to me as well. I have felt it too. I'm not saying that I'm immune to that, but that I have seen past it. The issues in their relationships come largely from... When the ivy bag is emptied. Yes. (laughs) Because they... I don't think it's that they don't understand that that ivy bag needs to be refilled by their own actions. Yeah, yeah. But that ivy bag has some kind of life of its own. And also, you have to have periods of Lent. You have to have periods of fasting. You have to have these periods, especially early on, where you are deliberately fasting Mm -hmm. from this IV drip. And maybe I shouldn't go into too much detail in the podcast. I'm not going to. But my brother is currently having some issues with the early stages. Yeah. And, And with coming to grips within himself about... What is the proper position for both him and his partner in these early stages? What are the proper demands from each other and stuff like that? And I sure. tried to offer advice, but of course my advice is coming from a place that is very different yeah. than where my brother and my mother and most people around me are coming from. Yeah. So there's only so much I can do. But in my own relationships, I have had to experience this limiting yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have as well. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I'm sure you've limited yourself far more than I have. But that you... Blue balls never applied so appropriately to an individual. Good God almighty. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise, my nads didn't fucking blow up. <laughs> we started this by talking about Jane Austen. <laughs> You know what? This is the balance, man. This yeah. is the this is the beast and the beauty. This is elegance and savagery, like mind and body. Yeah, it's exactly. Nads and Jane Austen, man. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so um, where where the fuck was I going? <laughs> I don't even know where I was going now. But but to say that I think. That a lot of modern relationships are largely for that IV drip. And I think more often than not, that IV drip is not intended to be a long-term concretized thing. Even when it is like, I want, you know, the the next high or something like that. Sure. It's usually just like, I want the next high from another person. And as soon as this person is... You're chasing the emotional dragon. I don't know whether you've ever heard that phrase. It's, Not that phrase, no, but, yeah, the concept. It's usually that. used in regards to highs, where, like, you're never going to get the high that you first had. Sure. And so you keep chasing the dragon of, of that high or a better high or something like that. Yeah. And so you're trying, and usually that's applied to, like, opioids and shit. It's not, like, marijuana or something. In any case, usually, in my experience, people are chasing this emotional dragon and usually doing it in other people. Mm-hmm. They're like, what's the next Tinder date? Or what's the next, 
you know, set of nudes I can get in this or yeah. something like that. It's it's not as cynical as, like, trophies or something like that, though I'm sure it is for some people. Yeah. It's largely just, like, a... I want the next time. Yeah. Well, and that's... Like, I see that, and to me, maybe this sounds kind of harsh, but that's selfishness. Like... I agree completely. That's selfishness. The way I... Look at relationships as what do I bring to this relationship? How can I care for this person? How can you further their life and better their life? Yeah. Like, in a way, my my fulfillment, my happiness is not dependent on that. Like, I'm independent enough. I'm content enough in myself. I do what I do. Like, I like having... The, you know, the warm fuzzies or whatever, experiencing that. Like, yeah, if you don't like having that, there's a problem. Like, yeah. You need to see if you're a human. Yeah. But I'm not reliant on that. And everyone has heard statements like it's better to give than receive. Or, you know, people will talk about how good they felt after they did something genuinely kind and selfless for another person. Self-sacrificing. Yeah. Everyone knows that, and yet practically, they don't make it a part of their existence, doing stuff for other people. They don't make it a general rule. Yeah, it is an exception. And again, i got to throw in the disclaimer, I know everyone has particular circumstances, particular resources at their disposal and everything, but give in proportion to what you have. And that's where I've said before, like, I don't, I try not to put my perspective on and my standards for myself on other people. I tend to listen to what they say they want in life and the things they believe in, and then I hold them to their own standard. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I know that I am kind of part of a dying breed, I guess. Like, look at things very differently from the majority of the people that I interact with, and just, like, on a practical daily basis, like, the amount of technology I use, the way I talk, the things I'm interested in, it's not what most people do or are about. I've put it in the words of almost seeing other colors from other people. Like, you see a different spectrum. Yeah. It's not that the world you see is fundamentally different. It's not like you see an object where somebody else doesn't. Yeah. But that the colors in which that object appear are different. Yeah. So for me, I when I'm interacting with other folks, there is a, a general disconnect, I, I, I feel. There's some translation that needs to go on. But with regards to relationships, I am I think reciprocation is massively important massively important um i i do not believe in one-way streets when it comes to relationships i might add that in reciprocation if a person if one is interested in reciprocation interested in having something go into the reciprocation be the one to begin it Yes. Be the one to start it. Yeah. I've to read, have a friend be a friend. Exactly. That I have seen a lot of emotional issues arise 
in people around me where they want a thing and they are not willing to be the first one to create it. Mm -hmm. They are not willing to be the one to be like the bastion of it. Sure. While they help the other person understand how they can participate. Because it does involve risk. It does involve putting your neck out on the table and you might get (laughs) chopped at, you might get ignored, which the being ignored is harder for me to deal with than getting chopped at. Because at least an, an enemy, like if they hate you, they still think you're worth their time enough to take a, a swing at. Where someone, who, it's like I've said before, like apathy is the greatest expression of hatred. Where the person does, doesn't even exist in your world. And that's, that's crazy to me. And, you know, it is very hard. This is where like the whole self sense of self-worth comes in. Mm-hmm. Like I know the amount of resource I put into relationships. And when that is snubbed or ignored that makes me like (laughs) so fucking furious like like do you understand how much i'm putting into this Mm -hmm. and i know that just my personality i can be overwhelming like the torrent of affection just like i it's like a dog with a bone like or like or or its owner Yeah, yeah it's owner like they get home from work and it's like, I fucking love you. Um, there's something Freudian in there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, I just, I kind of get jealous of the dog, right? Cause people will take it from the dog, but they won't take it from me. Oh, I see. Like, they'll be like, yeah, I I see. Like everyone's got a dog now. Right. Mm. And they will, they'll like pamper this thing and be like, Oh, you're so adorable. And I love you. And like, so good to see you. Yada, yada. And then I do it. And it's like, back off, man. Too much. And maybe it's because they just... I've tried to think about why it gets snubbed. um, That level of affection. And maybe people think it's like disingenuous. Like, I can't possibly be that serious. Or maybe I have ulterior motives. I think it is that weighed together with... A concern for necessary reciprocity. I think people are scared generally, maybe not scared is the word, but cautious of instances where they might be required to return a similar level. Yeah. And I think it is kind of a general thing in a lot of human interaction generally where you're concerned that you're going to be roped in. Sure. You're concerned that something's going to be required of you that is similar. Mm-hmm. That the the camera will be turned on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think it is probably both of those things. A concern for maybe you don't mean it, yeah. or maybe you have some kind of other thing that you are getting out of it. Sure. And that maybe you will then require it of me. Or that it will, in some strange cosmic way, be required of nature. And I, I get that, and it's something I've considered and thought, you know, maybe this is a reason why I, I get this reaction from folks. But it's just, 
it's sad to me because I've I, like I'll watch people as they're watching a movie or reading a book or even now like playing a video game because like a lot more thought and development goes into the the making of a video game than even a lot of movies um, and folks get really emotionally invested in various characters and so forth um, but I'll, I'll watch them as they're in this like alternate reality and you see that spark like you see the hope come out. And they're like, oh, I want to experience that. It's like, motherfucker, I'm right here. Mm -hmm. Like, I will do this for you. Just ask. Mm -hmm. Or maybe don't even ask. Just, like, you get the look of, like, yes. You get the the permission look. <laughs> I think they call that consent. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But The permission look. Yeah, the permission look. Um, <laughs> so... You know, I, I see this hope well up in people. And simultaneously, this, like, check against it. Like, people won't allow themselves to hope that largely. Like, they they kill the hope, or they put it in a cage, and they, they won't let it out. It's like one of my favorite poems is um, Charles Bukowski's um, Bluebird. The Bluebird. I love that poem. About keeping this bluebird in a cage, and you, you don't let it out, and you pour whiskey on it, and inhale cigarette smoke, so that the, the whores and the bartenders and the grocery, the grocery clerks can't see that he's in there, and you only let him out at night, and you haven't quite let him die. Like, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. Woof. Because I, I get, like, there was a season of life, and even now, there's still some sacred cows that, like, you protect things you don't quite let out. But, there are some things that are just for me. Yeah. But for the most part, I, I'm no way near as concerned with <laughs> my survivability. I guess, like, I am a candle to be burned out for the benefit of my community. Which is, first of all, your wife or yeah. your spouse generally. Yeah. That I don't think a lot of people understand that and especially like our parents generation because it seems to me from my experience of of my parents and of other people's parents who are of similar age you know that kind of late 40s 50s kind of age range the the generation that was raised by the boomers yeah that in them they have this like supreme self-preservation mm -hmm. that they have this especially emotionally because that's usually the only realm where that kind of thing comes out mm -hmm. they they're usually in a pretty safe environment yeah but that they are supremely concerned with preserving and growing themselves first like, they put the oxygen mask on themselves mm -hmm. first. And, yeah. And, you know, it's not like, you know... And it gets into the reciprocity thing. They're not willing to be the first one because they're not willing to take that risk because they might be hit. Yeah. They're not willing to stick their neck out because they could be hurt that way. Mm -hmm. Rather than going into that saying, I'm willing to be hurt for the sake of this. Yeah. Because I think doing it is worth that. Mm -hmm. It's worth that risk. Yeah. 
And that's where, like the other day, I mentioned to you that one of the hardest things about myself, dealing with myself, is knowing when to stop. Because some things are accomplished just through grit. Just through grit. It's like the Etruscans, right, going up against Pyrrhus. And he's like in charge of the elite fighting machine of the ancient world. And he's up against these Etruscan, like, sheep farmers, whatever. And basically, you know, Italian hicks. And they're just, they keep going up against it. They keep showing up. They keep, my history professor described it as like, these hillbillies, like, just hacking at the shins of, like, Pyrrhus's men, and, like, just stubborn as fuck. Like, they just want it go away. And that's where we get, of course, the term Pyrrhic victory, mm -hmm. where it's not worth the cost. And some things are accomplished that way, and I know that. So, practically, it creates this dilemma of, like, it's really hard sometimes to discern what tool you need to bring to bear on the situation because some things are just accomplished through hammering it out in a in a way my relationship with my wife was due to just being relentless on my part i kept showing up i kept showing up like i'm going to care for you i know you don't believe it but i'm going to care for you 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 and proving it over and over and over and over again. And in a good way. Yeah, not in a, like, creepy, I show up your, at your door yeah. every night kind of way. But, like, I will take care of you. And people need a lot of convincing that they're going to be cared for. Mm -hmm. A lot of convincing. I mean, my, my first girlfriend was basically that. Yeah. I basically proved to her I'm not really going to go anywhere, and as long as we're friends, that's cool, I'm fine with that, yeah. whatever, but I want to show you, and this was all long distance, so, you know, that's a... It, cre it opens a whole can of worms, yeah. it's a unique thing, yeah. Yeah, but, but I wanted to express, that not this kind of dumbass, like, oh, I'm in the friend zone, I've always been there for you, you know, and mm -hmm. you've never done anything for me, kind of thing, because it wasn't that, it was like, we're friends, yeah, and we're gonna hang out, and if you need anything I can give you, then I'll give it to you, sure, and then one day she was like, you know what, I think maybe I love you, yeah, and I was like, yeah, I've kind of loved you for a little while, mm -hmm. and so we were like, all right, let's go from there, yeah, and that lasted for five years, you know, that's no small time, no. you know, but, you know, eventually things didn't work out, whatever, that's life, but you have to be present, yeah. and learning in any situation, romantic or not, when to stop being present mm -hmm. is very difficult, Yeah, because if you have a will that's bigger than like a goldfish, you can stick out just about anything for a while. Yep. You know, as long as it isn't really sucking the life out of you. Yeah. You can stick out stuff for a while, and learning when to say, you know what, it's actually not worth it, mm -hmm. is difficult. And I think that there are times where you do have to be absent, because absence does make the heart grow fonder. Let your absence be filled. 
Yeah. Where you... I don't think people believe me when I say this, but I look at myself kind of like in the third person. And if someone's doing something wrong to me, like cast, you know, as a swine, like kind of trampling the pearls that I've put out there, objectively, that's wrong. Nobody should have their pearls trampled. So I'm looking like, yeah, it's personal, but you detach yourself from that and you say, objectively, no one should have their pearls be trampled upon. So it's like a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. You pull yourself out of the situation for a little bit as kind of this protest of no one's pearls should be trampled upon. Case in point, you're doing it to me, but if you were doing it to anyone, that's not okay. You're using it as a as a moment to learn or to teach a, a universal yeah. thing. You are seeing the general in the particular. Yes. Using it as your own personal parable. Yeah. But, yeah, I just... I... Kind of like I've said before, you know, I wasn't content to live vicariously through the internet. Mm -hmm. I'm not... I'm sad for people because I think that life could be lived so much more fully than people settle for. I think that people could have so much more affection in their relationships if they would just put themselves out there. And just general richness in living. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um... <laughs> That richness in living actually is what I see in Heidegger's project of what he calls Eigentlichkeit, mm -hmm. the authenticity. Yeah. Eigentlichkeit comes from Eigentlich, which, which means authentic, mm -hmm. but it literally means of the self. Yeah. And Eigen is like to, to own, yeah. you know, the, the self, it is your own kind of thing. It's actually etymologically related to the English word own, not just in possession, but as in you say, like, this is my own yeah. kind of thing. But so Eigentlichkeit is this self-possession that allows you to experience life more richly, yeah. that allows you to experience life not just as this some kind of radical individualist, yeah. but to actually go out into the commons, go out into the society and say, let's do this richly. Let's do this in which we are expressing ourselves, not just in some nonsense John Lennon way where we're throwing paint on a canvas or whatever, yeah. but that we're actually creating something that is fulfilling. Well, and that, you and I'm, I'm just qu quoting other people that I have heard. Um, I've observed the, observed the same thing, but... Um, you know, I've heard plenty of people say that there's a general lack of authenticity in that is expressed in modern social life. Um, and, you know... I, th I, I think the advent of social media has helped that quite yeah, Oh, a bit. yeah, yeah. And I've heard people say it like, you know, we have so many ways to be connected and we've never been more alone. That and and the contentment with that or the settling for that terrifies me, mm. because I know that people are capable 
of so much more than that. And that could be living so much more fully than that. People will express that they don't particularly enjoy that reality. It's like the hope I was talking about. You see the hope come out. Yeah. But they won't act on it. Well, that hope, which comes out in seeing a movie or playing a game or reading a book or something, is usually a hope that is released, at least in my understanding, by virtue of the unconnectedness of it, that for me, as the person that has the hope taken out of them, not taken out, but shown, blossom in them because of such and such media experience, it's because that media experience doesn't actually involve my effort. Yeah. It doesn't actually involve me doing anything or dealing with any actual consequences on me. I'm not going to go to someone and have to talk to them as though I had actually done this thing or that the emotional baggage of that was with me or something like that. There's no risk. Exactly. And so I think in that realm, in that simulated realm where there's no risk, it is much easier for that hope to come out. Yeah. Well, and that's why one of my favorite speeches ever is Teddy Roosevelt's The Man in the the Arena speech. Um, And... He chastises the critics who just kind of sit out, if you imagine like a coliseum, right? The critics, that they're the observers. They're just watching the people struggle in the arena and nitpicking their actions and, oh, well, they should have done it this way or they should have done it that way. But they're not in the arena, so they have no right to criticize. And he says it's better to... Be in the arena then fa- and fail, then not ever get into the arena. Because in the arena, you live. And we live in a society that's full, made up of observers. This idea of the arena is precisely why I have at the very least intellectually supported the protests in Seattle and elsewhere in around this time last year, uh, and also the storming of the Capitol. Yeah. Because I think that is a perfect example of that. And I had never heard of that speech or that analogy, but it only makes sense. It's obviously touching on a kind of universal perception of these kinds of things. Yeah. Where... Those people who made the autonomous zone Mm -hmm. and those people who stormed the Capitol decided we're going to get in the arena. Mm -hmm. We're going to actually do something. And regardless of the consequences, which may be good or bad, I'm not a consequentialist. They have decided that they are going to actually do something. They are going to go out into the real world and they're going to actually say, guess what? Within this area... No official police are allowed in mm-hmm. anymore because we are the people and we say so. Yeah. We're, this is the line. Police mm-hmm. on that side, us on this side. Yep. Good fucking luck. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to kill us or something like that. You know, yeah. I don't know the actual rhetoric of the people who were actually there or whether they were willing to actually die or whatever. But the same is true for 
the people who stormed the Capitol. Yeah. They're like, we're going to actually do something. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether they're misled, regardless of whether they are to be supported in their political leanings. Yeah. They decided they're going to go and do something. Yeah. They decided that they're going to be authentic. They are going to express their Eigentlichkeit and go and do something. Yeah. We're going to make something happen. Mm-hmm. And we might get hurt by it. You know, we might have some guy who accidentally tases himself in the balls to death. <laughs> that happened. But what a way to go. What Jeez. a way to go. But regardless of those consequences, we're going to go and do something. Yeah. The same is true for the protests in Ukraine yeah. in the 2014 and stuff. Yeah. Like or they, in Hong Kong recently, right? Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. They are deciding, it is people together deciding, we're going to go make an area where we say, here we are, we can do no other. Mm-hmm. That, regardless of whatever opinion might be held about their political leanings, sure. regardless of what opinion might be held about the goodness or badness of the consequences of what they did, what they did do was a real thing. Yeah. And that's more than what you've done. Yeah. You know, that is yeah. more than what... It wasn't just putting a filter over your profile pic. Ugh, yeah, it's like, yeah. it's... They didn't decide that we're just going to get on fucking Twitter and bitch about something. Stand up. Rise up. Like, my mom is real big into the the QAnon bullshit. Um, And words like that come out of her mouth pretty regularly. Like, we need to stand up. We need to speak out. And I'm like, you're not actually doing any of those things. You're not actually doing any of those things. Your parents lived through World War II and came over here after the war and birthed you and brought you into this world. And you grew up hearing all those stories about World War II and people being bombed and houses being leveled and people starving and an actual party actually being fascist. (laughs) Um... And you're going to sit here and somehow have this disconnect and say that you posting something on social media is standing up? And But that's where someone who has that background, who has all the, what you would think would be like fertile ground for correct ideas and the proper outlook on life, to, you know, develop those proper ideas and stuff, totally mess it. To be taken for a fool. Yeah. Totally miss it. All, all, the, all the stuff was there, and you, you put it together wrong. Um, you know that whole QAnon thing actually started on 4chan? I, yeah, I think you've mentioned it before, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, the, the only... Because I've had similar thoughts with, you know, seeing all these protests and you know personally i i think that at least what is espoused by a lot of them is too simple and once you get a movement that big you kind of have to keep it simple so i get it but the way it gets it's really how it's reported on it doesn't allow for nuance and if you are going to develop a whole new system, 
there has to be nuance. Um, but when we were watching that documentary on the 2014 Ukraine uprising, um, I was struck by the, the, some of the old military guys getting together to support the students. And they're like, we're going to show you how to basically make a phalanx and, um, you know, build barricades and stuff. Yes. Because that's, like, the youth tend to have that fire in the belly. Like, let's go out and fucking do something. But then you have to have experience. It's like the Marines, right? The Marines go in there. They're the tip of the spear. They fucking kill everything. But, like, the Army comes in and fills everything behind them and secures it. Um, the military has this um, kind of three-step process it's clear hold build uh -huh. right when you're securing territory and you have to follow that process you clear it you have to hold it long enough where it's like yours and then you build upon it um and i see with a lot of these protests the spirit is there the drive is there but you don't see a whole lot of logistics consciousness. Like, if you destroy this business, your area is going to be shittier. If you... And I'm not necessarily saying the big... The, the, like, the, the corporations and shit. Like, listen. If they want to go after Amazon, go after Amazon all the live long day. But there, do, there needs to be this conscientiousness when you're protesting of like is this going to make life more difficult for us and our allies and is that making it more difficult worth it yeah because yeah. that making it difficult can be worth it yes depending you know so you might be able to justify sure something like that like i surely by virtue of the media news representation of these events, yeah. riots, stuff like that, it's usually focusing sheerly on property damage. Yeah. Because for them, and for the system in which they exist, property damage is like the highest evil. Yeah. Like, everything else is lesser, but don't, just don't, oh, God. Yeah. They're out there looting those <laughs> looters. You know? It's this creation of this awful ideological realm where the property damage is the worst thing you can do. Sure. And I really kick against those goods. Mm -hmm. Like, fuck you, fuck your property. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. So that I have form too much of a knee-jerk reaction to something like the destroying the businesses or something like that. Or, yeah. You know, for a while there, and this was years ago, I don't even remember what it was for. There was a CVS somewhere that was yeah. burned down. Yeah. Everybody's talking about, oh, they burned down the CVS, where are they going to get their drugs? I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. Fuck your CVS. <laughs> like, because at the end of the day, yeah. a couple people not getting their drugs is less important than the potential outcome of of positive direct action. Sure. 
So you gotta, it's like those motherfuckers who are like, well, we have video games after the revolution. Like, dude, if you need your video games that bad, you're gonna die of the revolution. Yeah. And, I, and that's where I, you know, I've made statements before, like, a foolish, stupid friend is worse than an enemy. Uh-huh. Those are the people that I would say you're out. You don't get to be a soldier. Stay as far away from us as you can. Because you're only gonna handicap this mission. Like, because the statements like that prove that they can't go the distance. They can't go the distance, so they need to get the fuck out and stay away. And if you want to put your little filter on your profile pic or whatever, fine. But stay away from us. I'm not down with casual. It's like we were just talking about with romance, you know, with everything, really. I'm not down with casual. If you're going to do something, commit to it. And be aware of the consequences. Like, you need to go through that chain of logic. Like, if this happens, it's like the dog chasing a car. Mm-hmm. What do I do when we get the car? What that? Yep. <laughs> it's like playing chess or any other board game that's kind of along those lines, strategia or whatever. you got to think a couple moves ahead. Mm-hmm. Like, how am I going to prosecute this? And that's kind of what I've seen with some of these protests is they're too short-sighted. Like... It's almost like they know they're not going to be able to catch the car, so they just go out and act like they're chasing the car, and then it fizzles, and that's that. Well, so, and I I think this is the central issue of direct action generally, that, and we, truly, we should probably save this for a different episode, because I could talk for a very long time about this, that the anarchy of the revolutionary event is by its nature non-constructive. Mm-hmm. It is the clearing. Yeah. And that clearing is essentially different than the holding or the building. And the issue is that I don't think revolutionary movements, at least in the U.S., have been refined enough or built in such a way that there is actually, say for instance, a a Leninist vanguard, if Mm -hmm. you will, that is capable of organizing the clearing. Yeah. Directing the forest fire. Exactly. Yeah. So that we can get enough people with enough passion and enough willingness to be maimed or killed for the sake of change to go out and do the clearing. Yeah. Go out, do the revolution. And I'm not talking about, you know, bosses sitting behind and or like generals and just pointing. Yeah. I mean, they should be willing to do that as well. Sure. But in a way, the, the revolutionary that, that goes out and does the thing, does the clearing, is like the bitch who bakes the biscuits. You yeah. know, like, you just have to have the guy on the ground willing yeah. to get dirty. Yeah. And then with him, not behind him, not necessarily in front of him, yeah. with him is the man or the group of men that is capable of saying, okay, it's been cleared. Yeah. Now we build, or we hold. Yeah. And we're going to hold this for a while, and then we're going to build. And I think I think we're getting closer to that, at least to some extent. It seems like it, yeah. Because the thing like the Autonomous Zone in Seattle, that was clearing and then holding. Yeah. They didn't get to the building. Yeah. At least not as far as I understand. Because once you get to the clearing and the holding, in that holding phase, you have to have the policing. 
Yeah. You have to have somebody to make sure that shit doesn't go wrong internally. Yeah. And stuff started going wrong. Like, yeah. several people were killed in the zone. Like, you started seeing, like, that's, that's where the breakdown of, you know, the enemy, or the anyone who's uh, against my enemy is my friend sort of thing, is once that, it's like we've talked before about any anti-movement, once the object of their hate goes away, what then? And that's the, you got the car, man. You got the car. And now you start realizing that you don't actually agree, that there's dissension within your movement. And then... Well, who's going to be top dog now? <laughs> if So, like, if the police are gone, who's top dog? And so that's where I see this. If people catch the car, it's going to be... The world is going to get very tribal very fast. And it's going to be a bunch of small, little groups running around raiding and killing each other. Well, and I think that is... <clears throat> The central issue with a lot of revolutionary movements in the past, namely like the Soviet Revolution and the Maoist Revolution in China, yeah. where basically as soon as they happened, they became an empire yeah. or inherited an empire. Sure. And that almost immediately undermined them. Yeah. 